I'd like to hear your questions now. This is, we're into the home stretch of this little weekend class, so make sure you leave with what you need. wondering in your experience, have you ever encountered somebody where meditation didn't work for them? Ever come across somebody where meditation didn't work for them? Yeah. Maybe instead of becoming more calm, they became more agitated. Uh, well, actually, I, I have, yes, sometimes when people don't have enough instruction, um, they can adopt attitudes where they become very agitated. What is completely normal is that until you attempt to uh, meditate, you might not realize how much activity there is actually going on in your mind all the time. And so you might feel like your, your mind is more agitated than it was before. Uh, and then, of course, if you have expectations and start uh, feeling frustrated and trying harder and things like that, you just create more agitation on top of that. Can I ask why what your question comes from? I was just curious. It was just mm -hmm. one of those things that you know, ran through my head this morning during this morning's meditation. Mm -hmm. You know, I was actually doing a comparison and thinking about Newton's laws of thermodynamics compared to meditation. You know, energy can either be created nor destroyed. So there's energy and effort going into meditation. Yeah. So, you know, what's the, the you know, counteract to that, you know? So. That's an interesting way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I never, I've, I've, I've thought of it in a lot of different ways. Let's see. I haven't thought of it in that way before. But that is, a, yeah, it would be really interesting to think of it in those terms and see what we come up with. I think that. If you if you think of the mind as being uh, dynamic, consisting of uh, a, a complex of dynamic systems, maybe the way it works out is that the energy that you feed into it uh, is absorbed into those systems and causes them to shift in a new, higher order of. Uh, uh, of uh, stability. So maybe that's where the energy goes. <laughs> but it would be an interesting thing to think about. Well, my wife had a very good explanation for it because we talked about that during lunch. She said maybe, you know, when you're not meditating, the energies in, of your mind are in opposition to each other. That's true. Right? Yes. And when you're meditating, maybe you get them into alignment with each other. That's, yes, that's actually very accurate, yes. So. And she used the cat example, though. Yeah, I said, you know, there's a big ball of catnip, mm -hmm. and you know, most of the time, you know, all of all, all of your little cats are going around doing what they want to do, and they're putting mm -hmm. pressure on the ball of catnip. But when right. you meditate, the cats go to sleep, and the ball can kind of relax and <laughs> do what it wants to do. Yeah, I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Good questions, good thoughts. Thank you. Um, 
Other questions? Think about it here. What is it that you would really, really like to know uh, about this method before you go away? So that uh, one thing we didn't talk about was the very first stage, establishing a practice. And so maybe I should talk about that a little bit. To really get the benefits of meditation and to get past those very initial difficulties, you do need to have a regular practice. And you can start off uh, practicing for a shorter period of time and gradually increase it. And I would recommend that your target be that at a minimum you meditate once a day for 45 minutes to an hour. But you could work your way up to that. You could start with half-hour sits like we've been doing here, or even 20 minutes if initially you found that to be too much. But I, th I think most people could probably sit for half an hour. And then gradually increase those. Uh, but establishing a regular practice is challenging because uh, I'm sure for every one of you, uh, your days are already filled. I'm sure every one of you could easily accommodate another two or three hours in your regular day. I mean, maybe there's somebody here that that doesn't apply to, but certainly that's, that's the situation that most of us are in. We lead busy lives, a lot of things going on, many demands on our time and attention. And uh, so obviously, even to meditate for half an hour a day, something else has to give. So first of all, you're, you're not going to be successful in establishing a meditation practice unless you're at the point where you're willing to give it that degree of priority that you're going to, to look at how you spend your time now and you're going to set aside that time. You're going to take it away from something else. Now, uh, one of the things that doesn't work most of the time for most people, very, very rarely works, is the idea that, well, uh, I'll meditate when I get around to it. You know, if I've got time tomorrow morning, I'll meditate. But if, if I don't, I'll do it tomorrow evening when I get home. And that almost never works because you don't have time tomorrow morning. And then uh, it turns out that you don't feel like it tomorrow evening. <laughs> uh, the first step in trying to, to make a regular practice work is usually to find a time and to make that your meditation time and to begin to work it into all of the other activities you have in your life uh, and and to uh, to give it enough priority that it doesn't get bumped you know uh, you need to meet somebody and talk to them the only time they have available happens to be when you 
do your meditation. And uh, you, where you really want to get to is where you're willing to say, well, no, I'm not available that time. What about this other time? You know, just as if you had another even more important appointment scheduled for that time. And that's how you have to think of it. And meditation time is like one of, one of those things like showing up on time at work in the morning or uh, a, a, an important meeting with somebody or, uh, that it's one of those things that you can't allow to be pushed aside. You have to look at your daily schedule and figure out when you can make that regular time. And an important part of that is uh, to recognize that not every time of day works equally well. Uh, in general, for most people, the best time to meditate is going to be shortly after you've awakened in the morning, maybe after you've allowed 15 minutes, half an hour to do your uh, uh, to do whatever it is you usually do in the wake, when you wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee if that's what you're thinking, and then sit. That's not true for everybody, but in general that's true. That Sometime soon enough after you've gotten out of bed that you haven't started cluttering your mind up with a lot of worries and concerns, and you're still refreshed from your night's sleep. And, but if that doesn't work, then you'll have to find another time during your day. In general, for most people, the poorest time to meditate is in the middle of the afternoon, about uh, an hour or two after you've had lunch. And the next poorest time for many people, although some people find it to be a very good time, is uh, at the end of your day when you're tired and uh, you just, you know, you really just want to relax. You want to do something that, that, that uh, you know, watch television or read a book or, or something like that. But anyway, look at your day. Look at your schedule. And uh, if you're at all serious about meditation practice, figure out when is going to be your meditation time. And then start the process of making that a priority and making sure that you always practice at that time. The other thing is to find a place. You know, today I'll sit in the bedroom, tomorrow I'll sit on the couch in the living room, and the day after that, who knows, maybe on the toilet. <laughs> it's better to, you know, uh, the, the psychological effect of choosing a place, setting it up, equipping it, you know, uh, if it's helpful, have a Buddha image there and maybe make a little shrine or if you're not into that what whatever a, a, a picture of a, of a teacher or anything that makes that, that identifies that place as special to you nobody else needs to know uh, you know it doesn't need to be obvious to any stranger that walked in that oh that must be a meditation place but do something that identifies this as your meditation place so that you have your meditation time and your meditation place, and you start to build that association there. That, that this this is where I go every day at this time, and uh, I sit. Um, it it is a useful thing to meditate with other people if you can. So, if you can locate or start a meditation group, 
uh, where, you know, uh, if you can find other people who are interested in getting together and meditating once a week, that's great. There's a meditation center near where you live, and you can get their schedule and go and join them for uh, one or two of their sits during the week. That's a great thing, too. And I'll point out to you that you don't have to be doing, in most cases, you don't have to be doing the same practice they are, you know. So it could be a Zen center, and you're doing breath meditation. It really doesn't matter. Um, having a friend that you meditate with or a partner that can can be helpful too. There is one thing to be careful of if you say, if you have a friend and you say, okay, we're going to get together and meditate, and then that friend can't meditate that day, so you make that as an excuse for you not to meditate. You do have to watch out for that. Turn it around the other way so that that uh, you're not ever going to let anything else interfere with the meditation because you're letting your friend down by doing so. And that's supportive. There's a curious thing that happens though when you meditate with other people. There's kind of a synergy. Um, there's, there's sort of a mental connection that takes place. If you can meditate with people that are more experienced than yourself, you'll probably find that uh, for no reason that you can obviously put your finger on, when you sit with them, you have better meditations. You know, but. So that's another, uh, meditating with other people is another good idea, a good way to reinforce your practice. Inevitably, you'll have to deal with a certain degree of uh, what you might call laziness or procrastination, uh, pressure on your time, and the tendency to, to skip your practice and it's, it's important to recognize that that's going to happen and to uh, be willing to uh, take whatever measures are necessary to develop that habit and, and get past that and, and resist those temptations when they come. Because, you know, you might do really well for a week and then something comes along that, you know, well, it, this, this, is, this is a really good reason why I... Need, I really need to do this other thing instead. But it makes it that much easier for the next time you miss your practice. And then you find yourself at this point where, well, I, I practiced last Sunday, and it's now Thursday, and, you know, that sort of thing. So, yes? I have a suggestion. Mm -hmm. um, and this is sort of obvious, so forgive me for that, but, um, and you're not going to like it either. So it's obvious and you won't like it, but I'll say it anyway. Um, for most people who work a regular job, the time of the day that they have the most time is at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But like you just said, also for most people, the best time to meditate is at the beginning of the day. So if you could shift that, that'd be great. Well, of course you can. Mm -hmm. You just get up early. I know. Sorry. <laughs> if, you, if you habitually get up an hour early, you will yeah. begin to go to sleep an hour early. So that shifted that hour from when you had it to when you want it. Right. And that works. That is yeah. very good. Excellent suggestion. Wonderful. Which reminds me of something else. Uh, studies show that most people in this country don't get enough sleep. 
And so another change that you might find yourself making in your lifestyle is to uh, make sure that you do get enough sleep. Now, a good thing about meditation is over time, it can reduce the, need, the, the amount of time that you need to sleep. Initially, though, you won't have that, but you will definitely benefit by making sure that you do get an adequate amount of sleep. The quality of your meditation will be better, especially it'll be better in the sense that you enjoy it more. It's a lot more satisfying. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Motivation is very important. Um, and I would recommend that you remind yourself very frequently of the reasons that you motivate, that, that you meditate. You know, keep your motivations fresh uh, and up to date. They change over time. Uh, one day, maybe the only reason you, you meditate is because uh, you told your friend Joe that you were going to meditate with him that day. <laughs> and that's fine, you know. But you need to keep in mind what, what made you decide to do this anyway and refresh that and re-inspire yourself. Listen to recorded uh, Dharma talks and meditation talks and uh, read books and especially associate with other people that meditate and, and talk about your meditation. You know, How's your meditation going? It's good to talk about meditation. You know, ideas, things people have heard. Meditation talks that somebody else has heard. These help to keep the inspiration up. But do, do develop a regular meditation habit. Yeah. I have a question. Mm -hmm. I had this at lunch and I was trying to remember it. Um, you talked about the analogy of a muscle. Fact that by bringing your attention back to the breathing, it's kind of like building a muscle. Yes. Well, there's. It seems like there's a problem with that analogy because when you build a muscle, you then you can do that thing better. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of five pounds, you can lift ten pounds. Mm -hmm. So how does repeatedly? What's the logical connection between repeatedly bringing the attention back to the breath with not losing the breath. Well, those two things, we deliberately separated directed and sustained attention so that we could could work on them separately. Um, I'm not sure I quite see so if the you get connection that, between the, the, the inadequacies of the muscle metaphor. Okay. The inadequacy that I see is that if you say by exercising this factor like it's a muscle, you should get better and better at bringing your attention back to the breath. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't say that you should get better at not losing the breath. That's true. That is true. Well, I want to not lose the breath. Right. And so you <laughs> have to, yeah, exactly. I, I know. Yeah. And so uh, you have to exercise. A, a, a different muscle for that. Which one is that? <laughs> but they are connected. Okay. Um, one is the is the engagement muscle, but the most important one is the introspective awareness muscle. 
Okay, it's, you know, it's that knowing, not just knowing when you're not meditating well, it's knowing when you are meditating well too, and knowing when that changes. Knowing, knowing when there are distractions that are drawing your attention. Uh, knowing when there is a rising inclination of sort of restlessness in you that is going to make it much easier for uh, your awareness to go elsewhere. So both of these things work together. Uh, the uh, engagement, let's call it interest, taking the more interest that you can take in the meditation object, the more easily and naturally uh, you are going to stay with it. Now, it seems to me as though there is some very simple unconscious mechanism whose function is to act as sort of a timer for, you know, whenever you have your attention on something, uh, it, based on past experience, says, okay, we'll set the timer for this long and we'll let the attention go when the bell goes off. And so the longer that you can succeed in uh, remaining with your meditation object repeatedly, then that very simple little mechanism gets conditioned to set the timer for longer and longer, and so it gets to be easier and easier to stay on for longer periods of time. So maybe not exactly a muscle metaphor, a habit metaphor, or uh, uh, a little semi-intelligent mechanism that keeps track of what you're usually doing <laughs> and tries to make things work out better. Uh, essentially, all the different parts of your mind, uh, although they don't necessarily always work together that well, ultimately what they exist for is to contribute to making your normal, regular, habitual activities proceed in, in an easier, uh, more fluid, more graceful way. And so considering that, you know, on reflection, as we talked about the first night, there does seem to be this mechanism that does time our attention span, and I call it the sustained attention module. <laughs> uh, it does seem to respond to Anything that you do that helps to prolong your uh, attention in the same activity for longer and longer periods of time. So that noticing that you're starting to become distracted and pulling pulling it back so you stay in it, that's, that's the real muscle. Yes. And the other one just gives you more opportunity to work on that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And the way they, the, the way the directed and sustained attention become combined with each other is in exactly the way I think it was you that pointed out the first night that you know in it, how much difference is there between them when yeah. you know you're you're attending to your meditation object and you realize it's starting to move and then you re redirect it and and that's the point at which they start working together. Uh, the directed attention mechanism is triggered every time there's awareness that you're not that you're not attending to the meditation object and it becomes more and more automatic and it also becomes stronger in the sense that 
some of the things it's drawn towards are really attractive. And sometimes you manage to get really bored with the meditation. And so it's as this mechanism gets stronger that it's easier to redirect your attention, even in those cases. You know, sometimes, I don't know if you have experienced this personally or not, but I wouldn't be surprised, it seems like most people do. Sometimes there is just this really strong temptation that, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and, and think about this thing. Or, I don't really feel like meditating right now that much. There's probably only ten minutes left on the clock. Maybe I'll just have a nice daydream until the bell rings. At least I kept sitting here. Do you ever do that? Actually, I don't. You don't. Very good. I'm glad. No, I, but, but people, I I, I, I I've done that. <laughs> I've done that, and other people do that. I'm sorry. And uh, or or the temptation comes to get up. Yeah. Okay. This is enough for today. I'm gonna quit. Yeah. And that's where, as that that directed attention mechanism starts to get stronger, it gets a lot easier. I mean, the 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 more quickly you let go of that thought and come back, the easier it is to come back to it. And that's it gets stronger and it gets easier. And, and so instead of sitting there wrestling with the temptation to to either think about something else or to stop meditating, you know, it just the thought passes through your mind that you know, but it doesn't doesn't have that enough power so that you just you, you go to the thought and you let go of it and you come back right away. Yeah. The gift you've given me is that when that happens and I and I recognize I never draw a thought coming up and I just say, This is what I'm here for. That's right. This is what I'm here for. And you deal with it. Instead of where I have been, which is Oh, I blew it again. Yeah, yeah. Stay away from that. So I blew I it again, place. Because that's my practice. That's my practice. <laughs> right. yeah. So it's not just, a bad thing, right? No. Like, it's no, not a bad it's not. thing. I mean, if, if I wanted to daydream for 10 minutes, is something wrong with that? <laughs> if you wanted to daydream for 10 minutes. But it's not what you came here to do. Right. Right. True, <laughs> but it's not a, like, I don't have to. Yeah, you don't need to beat yourself up for it. Okay. You know, I mean... Except for for someone like Neil, most of us have those. <laughs> and so, and so, absolutely, don't feel bad about it. Don't beat yourself up. It. It's just, yeah, of course. Just like everybody else, I have those lots of times, you know. But when they come, you just say, yeah, that's not what I'm here for. Just let go of it, and you'll get better at letting go of it. And even, even those times when you, it's not so easy to let go of it. Uh, just don't beat yourself up about that either. Just say, well, I need to keep practicing and I will get better at letting go of it. <laughs> I can't repeat often enough that any sort of attitude where you are judging and criticizing and condemning yourself or your mind or, or your practice or anything like that is counterproductive. You know, 
And so always be on the lookout for that. And if you ever have thoughts arise about thinking of your meditation in terms of uh, using the words like difficult, hard, whatever like that, have a look and say, okay, what's happening here? Am I, am I creating an expectation so that I can disappoint myself? You know, And if I am, better to let go of that and just accept this is, this is the way my mind is, but I know what to do and I know it will change. As you, you we were talking about times of the day that are more conducive generally for people, as your meditation progresses, is that are those waves of t- what time is better and not as good? Are those less an issue because you've dealt with more of the obstacles and they're less of a problem? Yes, that's that is true. So that you know, once you've gotten, once you've worked through a lot of the. Uh, uh, meditating with uh, drowsiness and dullness, you can have a, a meditation in the middle of the afternoon. There might, your mind still might not be as sharp as it would have been in the morning, but you're not going to fall asleep anymore. You know? so, uh, so, so yes, your ability to meditate relatively easily uh, at different times of the day increases steadily. And also the duration which you can meditate. We didn't really talk about that much except to say to you that you should try to work up to at least 45 minutes or an hour a day on a regular basis. But there is an interesting thing that happens as you meditate for longer periods of time and that's that you uh, you confront more things and you're able to deal with them more effectively and so you have less problem with them. So every now and then, if you have the opportunity, uh, meditate for an hour and a half instead of an hour or two hours just to see the kinds of things that come up when you go past your usual habitual time limit. Or another thing that is almost just as good is to uh, do a second meditation. You know. So uh, if you usually meditate for 45 minutes a day, when you have an opportunity, you know, maybe on a weekend or a holiday or sometime when you don't have a lot of other things, do your usual 45-minute meditation, uh, do something else, and then go back and do another 45-minute sit and see the things that present themselves to you. You're really just, you're challenging yourself a little bit more. And you'll get a benefit from it. Other questions? No? No other questions? Well, see, I... On the one hand, I have so many other things that I could tell you about. But on the other hand, I've already covered all the things I came here that I intended to cover. So I really need 
you to tell me what else I should talk about. <laughs> okay, I'll come back to you in a moment. Um, you know, I've heard in, in different systems of explanation for meditation, they talk about the five hindrances. Yes. Um, can you talk about um, how to handle really really intense meditate uh, emotions that arise uh, kind of heavy primordial Freudian maybe child you know some heavy duty stuff that arises mm -hmm. the instruction I've received in the past is to you know maintain one's awareness of the the breath it's kind of like a lighthouse like I if it's heavy that powerful for me I I maintain awareness but it's though I'm walking in a hurricane um, I, I don't get blown off my feet by it, but it's, um, and it generally doesn't feel as amenable to a lot of the techniques that I've tried to, like, bring all my awareness on it, or um, uh, try to analyze it a little. Um, but it seems, at this point in my meditation, fairly uh, resistant to what tools I have to handle stuff at that level. Okay. Uh, yes, what I would recommend if you have really strong emotions that come up, um, f for a uh, for a really strong emotion, don't try to ignore it and just stay on the breath. Instead, put your awareness in your body and investigate the way this emotion, is, what kind of bodily sensations are associated with this emotion and investigate those objectively. Scan your body, find out where they are. Um, if there's obvious ones, like if it's causing a lot of tension in your forehead, well, let that tension go. But just scan your body and see, see what kind of effect it's producing there. And then when you notice, you know, if there's a tightness in your chest or a constriction in your throat or something like that, Take a little time to observe that. Where is it exactly? And is it changing? Is it getting stronger or weaker? What you're doing, you're not abandoning the emotion, but you're not allowing yourself to get lost in it. Instead, you're backing away from the purely mental aspect of the emotion, and you're going into the, into the, the sensory counterpart, the body counterpart and the sensation, body sensations are associated with it. And you're, what you're trying to do, what you want to do is to get to a place of acceptance where you can let it be rather than resisting and struggling against it. It may not be pleasant, but it's going to be a lot easier to deal with if you can stop resisting it. So by putting your attention in bodily sensations and investigating those sensations, it'll take some of the pressure off. Most emotions have, over a very short time span, they'll come to a peak and then they'll diminish and then the, you know, they have a kind of a wave-like property to them. And so you can tune into that in your body. And when it's starting to diminish in intensity, if, if you can, if you're not going to be overwhelmed by it, then you can start moving into uh, less of a purely uh, body sensory awareness and, and more of, of the emotional awareness of it. And 
this, uh, most of the time, in my experience, when people have strong emotions come up, these are things that they need to let go of. Um, if the emotion comes up by itself, not attached to anything else, it probably means that uh, that whatever whatever is giving rise to it is still too intense to reveal itself, and so you're just getting the emotion by itself. But if you can get to the place of just accepting the emotion and letting it be, it might just go away. But the other thing that might happen is they might have a, a past memory that comes up, and it starts to reveal what its roots are. Um, when that's the case, it's the same thing. You, the reason it's still there is because you've never really reached a resolution with this past event and its emotions. And it's going to stay there uh, operating beneath the surface of your mind until that happens. It's, as a matter of fact, most people when they're going through the intermediate stages of practice, stages four, five, six, and sometimes seven, will have a lot of old, buried emotional trauma will come up. And this is how it will come up. It will come up as emotion, uh, either with or without the memories. Eventually the memories will come up. Uh, usually the emotions are complex. Maybe the one that comes up at first is fear, but as you become comfortable with that and you're, allow, you're allowing the fear to be there, then maybe the memory comes up and then maybe you discover that, that there's a lot of anger and guilt there too. That actually the, the fear came up because it was the one that was easiest to confront first. Uh, it's the, and, and the anger and guilt is, is the part that was buried the deepest because it was, it was the one you least wanted to confront. But by gradually allowing yourself to just accept this not as I am this, not as, uh, not as I am this emotion, but rather get to that objective place. And that's where the, the sensations of the body, your, your objective. And when you think about the emotion, always avoid any self-identification. If you formula, find yourself forming the thought that I am this, I feel this. Try to let go of that and reformulate the thought that this is arising, fear is arising, anger is arising, guilt is arising, with the idea that I'm not the guilt. The guilt is an emotion generated by my mind due to causes and conditions, and those causes and conditions uh, are, are totally responsible for it. They're from the past. They're not from the present. I'm not doing it, but I'm experiencing it. Then you have this more objective relationship with it, and you can start coming into a place of acceptance with it. You know, if you're meditating and somebody starts out a jackhammer outside the window, then you don't feel responsible for it. You may have to deal with it, your meditation may be on jackhammer for a while. And what would be really ideal is to develop the skill so that if a strong emotion comes up, you have exactly the same relationship with it. It's, okay, that's what's here, and that's what's happening, so I'm going to go ahead and observe it mindfully, and let it be until it goes away. You know, 
There's nothing you can do in your mind to make the jackhammer stop. And likewise, there's nothing you can do volitionally to make an emotion go away. But it will go away if you let it. The more you resist it, the more uh, you complicate the situation. You either reinforce the emotion through resistance or else you create some new emotion that uh, uh, compounds whatever's already there. Uh, I, I wish, uh, wish we had more opportunity to talk about and deal with this, but it, it is a very important issue. I think very, very few people don't have some painful issues uh, that, that uh, sooner or later need to come to the surface and uh, be accepted. That's really what you have to do with this. You have to accept them. Once you accept them, then they just become part of your history rather than part of your present. Until you've accepted them, even though they're unconscious, they're part of your present. And that means they're going to be influencing your, uh, your experiences, your reactions in other life situations. And you may say to yourself, I don't know why such and such always bothers me so much, why I have such a strong reaction to it. And then someday when that comes up and it comes clear, uh, then uh, it's not there anymore. You don't have to continue reacting in that way because you've let this thing come to the surface, you've examined it, you've not attached to it, you've let it be as long as it, it was necessary to let it be there, and then you just let it go when it's ready to go. And that's very purifying, cleansing, better than weeks of psychotherapy. <laughs> I was actually going to ask your opinion on um, something like depression and anxiety and its potential relation to uh, practice. Yeah, yes. Stress and anxiety, there's a large depression. habit part of that. Depression and anxiety. Oh, depression and anxiety. Okay. Uh, depression and anxiety. Uh, very commonly, there are certain thought processes that recycle and they support an emotional state and then the emotional state continues triggering those thought processes. And so there's sort of a feedback. And it may be a, a you know, it's not necessarily a really simple loop. It could be a complex loop, you know, that um, this thought arises, it makes, it makes this emotion arise of loss or grief or sadness, which then triggers this other thought, which then uh, brings forth another closely related emotion. And so you can have a bit of a tangle of emotions and a tangle of thoughts, but they keep weaving back and forth and keeping each other going. So when you can become aware of that, then you can start working with it in a more positive way. If you recognize uh, these, uh, these thoughts, these repetitive thoughts, and you can recognize them, and if you can 
just the same way you do in meditation, shift your attention to something else that's better. Uh, very often, shifting your awareness into body awareness uh, uh, is is one of the best things to do. Just come into the present, uh, feel the sensations in your body, feel the breath, uh, get into that physical body sensory mode. Because as I, I pointed out when we were talking about meditation, the mental mental content is really, really powerful. And bodily sensations are also powerful but they're different. They're sufficiently different that you can use one to counter the other. So when you find yourself starting to get caught in negative thought processes, come into body awareness as as a first measure. Just bring yourself into the present. Those thoughts definitely do not have to do with the present. They have to do with the past or the future. So bring yourself into the present, the here and now, what you can feel now. And then, having done that, find some other way to occupy your attention that is more wholesome. Uh, Depending, you know, if if it's something real extreme, uh, then quit whatever else you're doing and uh, sit down wherever you can and practice uh, metta meditation, loving-kindness meditation. Try to replace an unwholesome thought process with a feeling of love and compassion towards others. Uh, does every, everybody here know what meta meditation is or loving kindness? Oh, maybe that's something we could squeeze in as a closer here. Okay. <laughs> that's a good idea. But the general idea, though, whether it's a meta meditation or whether it's something else, is to just simply find something else to to put your attention on. Not trying to stop the thought, trying to ignore the thought and let it let it stop by itself. Just trying to the same way uh, you focus on your breath and you let the distractions be until they go by themselves. So focus on something more wholesome. Uh, more desirable, more more support, supportive to your well-being until the negative thoughts pass away. Uh, the same thing with the emotional aspects of depression and anxiety. When you feel anxiety arising, where do you feel it? Anxiety has a huge physical component. And so if you can get away from, from oh, I'm anxious, oh, I have this terrible feeling of anxiety to... One of, oh, let's just investigate what this anxiety feels like. You know, uh, is it is it in the head? Is it in the shoulders? Is it in the neck? Is it in the throat? Is it in the chest? And, and what are its qualities? When you get into that objective mode, it loses a whole lot of its power. And uh, you'd be able to... Uh, through that investigation, you'll be able to hopefully forestall getting into the thought processes. You know, you can, if you're prone to anxiety, you feel yourself becoming anxious, and you think, oh no, I hope I'm not going to have an anxiety attack. But you know 
what you're doing is you're, you're, you're starting the whole thing by having that very thought. Oh no, I have to do this and, and I can't afford to get anxious right now. That would be terrible. You know? and, and we do this all the time. It's exactly how the process works. So recognize that and use the skills that you have to interrupt it in whatever way you can. Hopefully you'll find that useful. Yes, and you had a question. Earlier you were talking about duality versus non-duality and oneness in the various stages. You mentioned that there was a stage beyond oneness. Mm -hmm. So I was curious if you could elaborate on that. Mm. A little bit, yes. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a very, there is a lot to this topic. And I know at, at first glance, well, what's the difference between oneness and non-duality? Um, <clears throat> and in this case, we're, we're using the word non-duality to refer to a much more subtle recognition of the nature of reality. Oneness is still a, a kind of conception, conceptualization. The mind is conceptually, conceptualizing a wholeness uh, that uh, we are a part of, but it's still a conceptualization. And even the, the concept of oneness is intrinsically dual. It's dual in the sense that there is the, the uh, concept, the, the concept, and then there's the uh, knowing of the concept. So there is still this, this uh, subtle duality there. So anytime you have a concept, you're still in dualism, even if the concept is, is itself is, is unified or one. The non-dual um, cannot, by definition, be conceptualized. So how can we talk about it? We can only talk about it in negative sort of terms. We can say that it's non-conceptual. We could say that it's void. We could say that it's empty. <coughs> and and th these, are, these are the ideas that we're talking about there. We're talking about something that is a whole quantum level beyond existing within the concept of, of oneness. I'd love to talk to you. I, I hope you're interested enough to learn more and, and pursue, pursue more about this idea. Because uh, this is what you might call the, the realization of non-duality is uh, the uh, highest ideal, the highest objective of this particular path and practice. So... 
non, non-duality. That's very mysterious stuff, but... Good question, though. I appreciate the question. Because, yes, what's the difference between oneness and non-duality? And frankly, a lot of people don't know. Um, I said it would be very interesting if you... uh, It would be very wonderful if you decided to take an interest and learn more. Let me just caution you, though, that if you go to the library and pick up a book, it is possible you'll pick up a book written by somebody who doesn't know the difference between oneness and non-duality. And They'll talk to you about becoming, uh, achieving union with, with Brahma, or achieve, uh, or dissolving the self into God, or something like that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. When I read this, I went through and made boxes around everything that I had a question about. Yes. Oh, here's a box. Okay. Uh, the four applications of mindfulness. Yes. Something that I did. This is a very powerful mode of practice. Um, The first application of mindfulness is to the body. Awareness of the body as an aggregate and uh, awareness of the body in itself, uh, awareness of the body as sensation. The second is the uh, mindfulness of uh, what we call vedana, translated as feeling, but in English we say affective quality. Uh, it's mindfulness of the the experiential quality of something being pleasant or unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and. Uh, Physical sensations can be pleasant or unpleasant, and mental objects or mental experiences can be pleasant or unpleasant. And so this actually gives us five categories of things, the the physically pleasant, the physically unpleasant, the mentally pleasant, the mentally unpleasant, and that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And so... This, this application of mindfulness involves becoming aware of the pleasant, unpleasant, or neither quality associated with sensations and with mental objects. Uh, the third application of mindfulness has to do with uh, mindfulness of mental states. And these are, uh, these have uh, in some in some ways, they are what we think of as emotions, but they go beyond that. So, uh, mental states, mental states of various kinds associated with desire. Mental states of various kinds associated with uh, aversion or hatred. Mental states of various kinds associated with delusion or confusion. And then there's also the kinds of mental states that we become familiar with in meditation, mental states of dullness or mental states of, of strong mindful awareness. And then there's mental states of, of focus, uh, clarity, concentration, and so forth. So this is, 
this is a practice of coming to recognize the mental state that is present at the time. And these are all connected. Uh, you know, you, if you're mindful of the body, there's a sensation arises, produces a pleasant or unpleasant feeling, produces a mental state of desire aversion, for example. And then the fourth one, the fourth application of mindfulness, it's the most subtle to to describe. It is, uh, it's mindfulness of dhammas, which means mental objects. But uh, to be mindful of mental objects, to be truly mindful of mental objects, is to come to a place of realizing that everything is a mental object. And actually, uh, to practice mindfulness of mental objects, we have as tools to help us focus uh, the five hindrances, the five skandhas, the, uh, 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 and if you're not a Buddhist student of Buddhism, you say, five what? <laughs> okay, five, five aggregates. There are these categories of things, including, including even the, the Noble Eightfold Path itself that these are tools for helping us to practice mindfulness of mental objects as mental objects. Or another way that we could put this, because in the process of, of applying mindfulness to mental objects as mental objects, what we become aware of is that our reality, which is another meaning of the word dhamma, is mind created. So being mindful of dhammas as dhammas or mental objects as mental objects is also becoming mindful of reality as being mind created. And the way these all tie together is that if you practice all four applications, you come to see how your reality is a product of your mental state, which is uh, is influenced by the, uh, the feelings that you experience in reaction to the, uh, the sensations and the actions of the body. So you can see how, can you see how it all ties together? Yeah. So your feelings, you feel, you feel things that are pleasant uh, and it puts you into a good, happy mood and you live in one kind of reality. You, feel things that are unpleasant, and you get in a bad mood, and you're in a different kind of reality. And your entire reality all of the time is being formed in this way. So that's what the four applications are about. It's, uh, this, this is a very brief summary of the practice. But. Yes? I have a, another sort of nuts and bolts kind of question. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> when we talked about sustaining attention on the breathing, you know, what you said a number of times is that if you can find the breathing interesting, that's mm-hmm. better, right? But there's also um, a big, uh, the emphasis is to think about the, the breathing sensation here. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, you know, I know, you know probably everyone does that. <clears throat> well, you can feel it in your abdomen, mm-hmm. you know? And that's kind of a relaxing way to feel it because mm-hmm. the abdomen goes up and down. It's kind of relaxing. 
and like I can feel it in my head sometimes if mm -hmm. I try. It's a very interesting sort of uh, stretching and coming back kind of feeling. It's kind of strange, mm -hmm. but it's interesting. Yes. So when you talked about methods to keep it interesting, you don't talk about moving the attention around. So it gives me the impression that there's something pretty special about this place. And why is it so special? The, the, no, that, well, <clears throat> I didn't mean to create the impression that there's something special about that place. Although there is, there is just a little bit of specialness there in the sense that the nerve endings there are very sensitive inherently. And so that through experience, your brain, your brain can become much more responsive to very subtle sensations there. And uh, in deeper states of concentration, the breath becomes very, very quiet. You know. um, also, in terms of having more to examine and be aware of, just in terms of engaging, there, uh, it's usually easier because of that sensitivity to discern a greater variety of sensations. Uh, uh, you know, there's not just touch, but uh, and just pressure, but there's also a movement, and there's also temperature, and there's also subtle, subtle gradations of, of all of these. So that's about as special as it is. Beyond that, th those are more just details of convenience. Beyond that, it doesn't really matter. And some people do find it much easier to meditate on the abdomen. And there's no reason why they shouldn't. Uh, about moving it around. You can move it around. Um, just because, well, there's probably no reason why you couldn't move the awareness of the breath around to different places uh, at any stage to to help you sustain your awareness there. Um, but there is one advantage to spending the majority of your time on one place, like the nose, and that is the familiarity that develops there. So other than that, um, I don't suppose, I, I can't offhand right now think of any reason why a person couldn't, if they chose to, uh, constantly move the location of where they observe the breath. Through the middle stages of the practice, we do that deliberately. We, you know, we deliberately move the attention down and watch the abdomen, and then we add the chest to it and watch the abdomen and the chest together, and then eventually we uh, observe the sensations of the breath and the in the toes and the tips of the ears, even so. <laughs> if you can feel them there, but interestingly enough, you will feel something there. It may not be, may not be a physical sensation produced by the movement of the breath, but there actually are energy sensations that you can feel that change in rhythm with the breath in your toes and places like that. So, good question. No. If it's helpful to you, uh, if it's helpful to you to uh, improve the, the the training of your stability by shifting the area around, I can't think of any reason why you shouldn't do that. So long as once you've succeeded and you no longer need to do that just to 
prolonged, sustained attention, then settle in on one place and let that familiarity develop. I have a question to go along with that. Uh, I'm still having difficulty trying to make my meditation object, which is usually the breath, more uh, more vivid, mm-hmm. more intense. Uh, I'm, ab- I'm able to like stay focused on it for a while, but then, um, and I use sort of like investigation techniques, like looking at the beginning and end of each breath, or the way it travels around the body. But it, uh, I guess I'm. Has, I'm still having trouble making it more vivid. I guess my question is, is it maybe it just comes with more practice, more repetition, or is there maybe other types of investigation that I can do? Um, <clears throat> well, you're not really making it become more vivid, but what you're doing is you're allowing your awareness to uh, to register a more vivid perception and ways to do that. Well, in terms of observing the sensation of the breath at the nose, uh, it is through trying to become aware of more and more subtlety of the sensation. If you can, uh, in the course of the in-breath, if you can distinguish the impact of the air uh, from the coolness and, and uh, you also can distinguish the initial strong movement and then uh, the slowing down of the movement, if you can uh, recognize that when you first begin the in-breath, the air feels cooler, but partway through the in-breath, while the air coming in still feels cool, it doesn't feel as cool, there's a lot of subtleties like that, that if you just exercise being aware of those, and then uh, as a result of that, in the future you should find that there is a, a more vivid or intense quality to your awareness, even when you're not making that additional effort to investigate those degrees of subtlety. Because by focusing in on those things, a little while with some extra effort, uh, it it brings that awareness up, and then and then you should experience it more readily afterwards. That's what I would suggest. Um, and the whole point of having any concern at all about how vivid that perception is is just that your mind is in a state of uh, stronger, uh, more powerful mindful awareness as opposed to a weaker, duller kind of state. Okay? So the, the vividness and intensity of perception is the, the easiest way for us to recognize the, the quality of our mindful awareness in the moment. And so that's the whole point of it. To make, to make, the, uh, to make the perception of the breath more vivid is to uh, make 
qualitatively the, the uh, power of your mindfulness uh, a little bit stronger. And so the way you cause that happen, to happen is just simply trying to be aware of more of the details of what's, uh, what's taking place in the course of the breath. Does that make sense to you? So try that out. Try, try that out. Just set yourself the goal that just to start off with just the in-breath, to uh, monitor and become aware of the subtle changes in the impression of temperature in the course of the in-breath from the beginning to the end. And when you can do that, uh, see if you can notice, well, let's put it this way, pose it as a question to yourself. Does the sense of movement produced by the flow of the air, is it continuously the same from beginning to end? Does it start off stronger and then become weaker or weaker and then become stronger? Or is there sort of a, a, a it's stronger, weaker, stronger, weaker, stronger, weaker thing happening that between the beginning and the end of the end breath? Just do those two exercises for a little while and then relax a bit and see if you don't have a, an experience of more vivid perception. Okay? Yes? Uh, I just follow up with his questions. Um, and uh, like for me, um, when I um, do the meditation, I try to imagine, uh, to enable to be vivid, uh, I, I try to imagine that there's a, the wave of the the energy of the universe is goes yeah. up and down, up and down. So instead of I focus on the uh, breathing, count mm -hmm. the breath, I just uh, when it goes up, I try to like uh, mm -hmm. breathe in and it goes down and it breathes out. So in, by doing that, I think uh, in, instead of uh, um, I feel myself over pressure when uh, just focus on the breathe. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's uh, too heavy, too strong. Sometimes too weak. But following the wave, and uh, you know the wave is uh, um, has a pattern. Mm -hmm. So your breath is is kind of uh, uh, really in uh, the same pattern, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it's uh, helping to uh, focus to to. That's good. Use tricks like that to help you focus, and then, but allow yourself to gradually move away from that kind of imaginative assist to uh, to being aware of the of the reality that's present in the moment, which is just a series of sensations unfolding. But try to take that same sense of satisfaction and enjoyment with you as you make the shift, okay? Uh, so some people will, you know, sort of spontaneously generate a, a visual imagery that goes with the breath. And if that happens to you, go ahead and, and, and go with it. But the same thing, you know, go with it as long as you need it to help you stay focused, but when you don't need it anymore, transition to the the reality of the moment. That's what we're always trying to get towards here, is, uh, is the actual reality of the present moment, and anything that helps us uh, take advantage of it, but uh, you know, don't, don't leave the training wheels on any longer than you need them. Uh, same thing goes for verbal aids. It's, if it's helpful to think to yourself, beginning, middle, end, beginning, middle, end of the end breath and the out breath, go right ahead. Do anything that helps, so long as it helps. And there will come a time when you know you don't need it anymore. You can just let it go.
Thank you. Good question. I appreciate it. Yes. Uh, may I add something to yes. uh, what you said to my lady here? Uh, if we were to understand the goal of meditation as um, having more vivid imagery of the breath, then we're setting up the expectation mm-hmm. that we wanted to see things in a certain way, and we may inadvertently be manipulating the content of our of, of our observation, and ended up doing a kind of uh, imaginative practice rather than developing intentional precision. And so, another way of uh, phrasing this, another way of uh, stating what meditation should be like, is that we are developing vividness of our observational acuity. Mm-hmm. We are developing inquisitiveness. We are developing wakefulness. And so in other words, even when breathing sensations appear very obscure, not so vivid, ambiguous, and so forth, we know the obscure, the non-vivid images clearly with great wakefulness. So it's not so much about expecting what you ought to see that constitutes the correct way of looking at things. It's about creating the right kind of mental condition where even obscure, non-vivid experiences could be seen clearly. Does that make sense? Thank you, William. That is absolutely right, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I, I just asked the question because I was falling asleep and because my mind was becoming quite dull. So was, I remember from the handout that that was one way of trying to be more alert. Um, yeah. yeah. So. It's just a, like a find a, a object to focus uh, instead of uh, let the mind randomly walk, find a, a focus point so, so mm-hmm. that... Um, Yes, it's it's finding a way to to be more fully engaged in the moment and keep yourself present. Yeah, and so yes, by all means, do that. And and as William says, remember that that really is what it's all about. Not you know, not that it has to be in any particular way, but that you really clearly know. However, it is because sometimes your breath becomes very fine, and when it becomes very fine. You may not be able to detect all of the breath, but that's all right. That's the way it is. <laughs> okay. All right. Have we have we have we run out of questions? Seems like we might have. Um. I I think the the. Uh, the idea that arose of finishing off with a metta meditation, a loving kindness meditation, I like that. So I'm going to suggest that we take a little break, and then we'll come back here at 3:30, and uh, I'll guide you. I'll do a guided uh, loving kindness meditation, and uh, when I ring the bell. This wonderful experience will be over with. I have really loved working with you and enjoyed it thoroughly, so I hope it's been good for you too. So we'll come back and we'll meditate together uh, at 3.30. Please make yourself comfortable.
as usual. Settle your body. Let yourself become grounded. And close your eyes. like you to do is repeat the phrase, may I be free from suffering to yourself, as you call forth the feeling as clearly as possible of being completely comfortable and at ease and free from every kind of suffering. Now, as you repeat to yourself, may I be free from ill will, call forth the feelings of being completely at peace with everything and everyone. completely at ease and at peace. Repeat to yourself, may I be filled with loving kindness and call forth those warm feelings of love, of tenderness, of caring.
Put a little smile on your face. And while feeling at ease and at peace and with that warm feeling of love, say to yourself, may I be truly happy and call forth as best you can feelings of genuine happiness. Use your memory Use your imagination, whatever it takes, to make these feelings as immediate and real as possible. May I be free from suffering. May I be free from ill will. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be truly happy. to yourself, just as I want these things for myself, so do all beings want to be free from suffering, free from ill will, filled with loving kindness, and truly happy. Now think of someone, someone close to you, that you care about. Picture them in your mind. Imagine them wherever they might be at this time, whatever they might be doing. And say to yourself, may this person be free from suffering. And imagine that at this moment, that any discomfort or any pain that they're experiencing is immediately gone. And picturing the same person, say to yourself, may they be free from ill will and imagine that any vestiges of irritation or anger that they might have disappear in this moment and they find themselves feeling completely at peace.
and say to yourself, may they be filled with loving kindness and visualize them experiencing a flood of that warm caring. say to yourself, may they be truly happy and imagine that at this moment they are experiencing genuine, profound happiness. And for just a moment, hold the image of that person experiencing the ease and the peace, the loving concern and the happiness that you have directed towards them. keeping these feelings strong in yourself. Imagine someone that you know that you're not so close to. Maybe a neighbor, someone you work with, a casual friend. And picture them wherever you think they might be right now. Visualize them doing whatever it is that you think they might be doing right now. And say to yourself, may he or she be free from suffering and visualize that any discomfort any suffering that they're experiencing is immediately washed away. And now say to yourself, may they be free from ill will. And in your visualization, See them now experiencing that profound peace. And say to yourself, May they be filled with loving kindness and visualize them as they experience this warmth filling their heart.
say to yourself, may they be truly happy and imagine them as they are filled with this happiness. Now think of everyone else sitting in this room and direct towards them the wish that they may be free from suffering and imagine that that sense of ease that you feel is actually flowing from you to every other person in this room. So we're like a network of, of wonderful ease and comfort. And now, to everyone else in the room, direct the wish that they may be free from ill will. And let's share this feeling of peace and ease with each other. May we all be filled with loving kindness and direct that feeling of caring, loving warmth that you feel to everyone else and share the feeling that they are sending to you. direct the wish to every person in this room that they may be truly happy and let us share this feeling of happiness amongst ourselves. Here we are, like a radiant 
glowing sun of peace, ease, love, and joy. And let us shine forth these wonderful feelings to every sentient being anywhere in this universe, above, below, to the north, south, east, and west, to the very ends of the universe. Let us share this wish. May all beings be free from suffering of every kind. May all beings be free from ill will and completely at peace with one another and with all that is. And may all sentient beings to the ends of the universe be filled with loving kindness and enjoy the warmth of caring, concern, and love for one another. beings everywhere be truly happy. Picture William before you, who went to so much trouble, to so much effort to make this event possible to bring us all together, and express your thanks by directing all of this love, all of this happiness, all of this peace, and all of this content and comfort to William. We all owe him so much. And if you could please picture Deborah before you, who is also 
done so much to help make this happen and to go smoothly. And pour forth these feelings of ease and peace, of love and happiness to her and appreciation for what she's done for us. once again consider each other all of us in the room what we've learned from each other the questions that we've shared everywhere be free from suffering and may we do whatever we can to help make that so may all beings everywhere be free from ill will and may we show them the way through our own practice May all beings everywhere be filled with loving kindness and may it spread to them from the loving kindness that we spread from our hearts in all of our actions and all of our relationships. And may all beings achieve for themselves that supreme happiness of complete and full awakening.